Let's now turn to our text passage for this morning, and that's taken from the first book of Samuel, chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. We just sang about fulfilling vows, and here we will read of Hannah and also Elkanah, fulfilling a very difficult vow. 1 Samuel 1, beginning at verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, As your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. So far. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today in our text we have a story about vow-keeping, about keeping vows. And many of us here, if not most of us here, have made vows, uh, baptism vows, profession of faith vows, marriage vows, ordination vows, perhaps some of you have even made citizenship vows. Now the thing about vows is sometimes they can be very hard to keep. We all know that it's one thing to make a promise, to make a commitment, but it's another thing to carry that out when difficult times come. And even beyond vows specifically, we can think to commitments and to promises. Perhaps in this moment you can think of uh, of something that you promised to your parents or to your teachers or to your children or employer or employee. We've all made commitments or promises as well. And looking ahead to this coming week, we can probably foresee moments of temptation where we will be tempted to break our vows, to outright break our vows, or perhaps even to to live in a way that's not in keeping with the spirit of the commitment that we've made. So to get away with something, maybe not necessarily illegal or technically wrong, but again, not in keeping with the spirit of the commitment we have made. But as Christians... It's vitally important, it's essentially important that we are people who keep our word, people who are faithful to our vows and to our commitments. We live in a culture we know where this is becoming less and less important, and in that kind of culture we need to be on our guard, that as Christians we can shine as beacons of faithfulness, reflecting the character of our faithful God and of our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. 
And in our passage this morning, as mentioned, we see an example of very, very difficult vow-keeping. Hannah and Elkanah are following through on a very hard promise. And they do so, and they do so extravagantly and enthusiastically. They're trusting that the Lord will use their commitment for good. And so this passage challenges us today to trust in God, to trust Him in carrying out our difficult vows and commitments, knowing that even if they don't feel right in the moment, God is going to use our vow-keeping, He's going to use our faithfulness for our own good, but ultimately for the glory of His kingdom. And so the theme of the sermon this morning, I've summarized the text as follows, follow through on hard promises, trusting the Lord to use them well. And we'll look at the three parts of that hard promises, following through and trusting the Lord. The, f- the point of the first part of our passage is to make clear how difficult and even unnatural a vow this was. First of all, uh, let's look at verses 22 to the first half of 24 and notice in those verses the strong idea of Samuel being weaned, that is the point at which his mother stopped nursing him. Uh, notice how strongly that is in these verses, starting at verse 22. Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may, be appear, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. So you can see how much that's stressed in those verses. So what's... Uh, what's the, the point? Um, before I answer that, just in relation to that, if you look at the end of verse 24, you see a little sentence there, and the child was young. And literally in the original language that says, now the young boy was a young boy. So it's just a way of, of making a stop and pause to realize again, yeah, Samuel, Samuel was just a little boy. And that's one of the main points of this first part of the text, that Hannah was bringing her son Samuel when he was really still a little boy. How old was Samuel? Well, Samuel was probably about three years old. That sounds quite old uh, for weaning, but a few ancient texts refer to weaning at the age of three years in the ancient Middle East. So he was probably about three years old. In any case, we know that Samuel is a child. He's still helpless But there has been three years of development in this very intimate relationship between mother and child, between mother and nursing son. And we're meant to notice this connection and so really reflect on the difficulty, on the nature of this commitment that Hannah is making, bringing up her son just weaned away to the tabernacle. What would this really mean to give her son up? To to help us reflect on the difficulty of this commitment, I want to read to you a brief passage from a very famous novel from the 1940s, a novel called Cry the Beloved Country. Perhaps you've heard of it. The setting is in South Africa during a time of racial tensions. And um, in this brief passage, there is a woman in a shanty town, and she's losing her child to illness, to sickness. Outside there is singing, singing round a fire. It is in Kosi Sikaleli, Africa, that they sing. God save Africa. God save this piece of Africa that is my own. 
delivered in travail from my body, fed from my breast, loved by my heart, because that is the nature of women. Oh, lie quietly, little one. Doctor, can you not come? We do not need the doctor anymore. No white doctor, no black doctor can help her anymore. O child of my womb and fruit of my desire, it was pleasure to hold the small cheeks in the hands. It was pleasure to feel the tiny clutching of the fingers. It was pleasure to feel the little mouth tugging at the breast. Such is the nature of women. Such is the lot of women to carry, to bear, to watch, and to lose. That's the end of the quote. Now I want to stress after reading that quote that there's really a sense of despair in this passage a sense of despair that we don't find in our text. So the point here is not the despair. The point is just to to drive home to us. Um, It's a beautiful and powerful illustration of that intimate connection between between mother and nursing child, which is a central idea in our text. So no, Hannah was not giving up Samuel to death, but Hannah was giving up Samuel to a place that was about 25 kilometers away in a day without cars, in a day without telephones or Skype or FaceTime, or WhatsApp, or anything else like that. And so let's not underestimate the, the nature, the difficulty of this separation. Her son was gone to Shiloh, and Hannah might see him perhaps a couple of times a year. Now this commitment of separation from her child would have been increased for a couple of reasons. It would have been even greater because in the first place, Samuel was Hannah's only child. In chapter 2, we see that Hannah has more children. God blesses her with more children. But at this point, she only had one, Samuel. And related to that, it's also stressed in our text in verses 22 and 28, and also in verse 11, that this was forever. She was giving up Samuel to Shiloh, to the service of the Lord, all the days of his life. And then finally, In the third place, this separation was increased because of the state of the tabernacle. Eli, the the priest, was old and he was apparently incompetent as we read through the first couple chapters of Samuel. We can see that. And the priests, his sons, were, were abusive, selfish, and adulterous. And so as a godly woman, a woman who loved the Lord, you can imagine that it would have been very difficult for Hannah to leave her little boy behind and go back to Shiloh. Of course, as readers, as Christians, we, we know what happens. We know the happy outcome. At the end of the day, Samuel becomes powerful in the kingdom of the Lord, and, and it's a beautiful story. But Hannah and Elkanah, in that moment, they trusted the Lord, but in that moment, they didn't know exactly what was going to come of this. And so, yes, we can see from this passage that vows can be very difficult, and Vows can even feel totally unnatural, totally wrong. And today this sense of feeling unnatural might, might work against us even more because we live in a culture that so strongly stresses doing what feels right. But like Hannah, as Christians in 2015, we are called to do what is right, not necessarily what feels right. We have made vows or promises to God, to our church, to our spouses, to our children, to our country. We've made commitments to friends, teachers, business partners, children, employees. And even when it hurts, we're called to keep these vows, to keep these commitments. Of course, providing 
that these vows and commitments were legitimate in and of themselves. Let's think for a moment of Jesus on the cross. It didn't feel right when Jesus was bearing the wrath of God. In fact, this probably has to be the height of unnatural, the Son of God bearing the wrath of God. It didn't feel right as the crown of thorns pierced his brow or as he hung there gasping, dying, and and dying at the hands of creatures who had been created by his own power. And certainly, it couldn't have felt right, if we can speak that way, for God the Father to pour out his eternal wrath on his only son, the only perfect human being in the history of the world. But Christ, in his faithfulness, went to the cross, and God, in his faithfulness, punished him there. In the cross, God was faithful to his vow, to his oath, which he swore to Abraham. Many years ago, God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And so the Christian life is a life of being called to reflect the faithfulness of God, of doing what is right, of keeping our word like Hannah, but even further like Jesus, like God himself, even when it feels wrong, even when it hurts us. This leads us to our second point, the follow-through. Hannah and Elkanah, they keep their word. They keep a difficult vow. But more than that, just look in the text how they follow through. First of all, let's reflect on one very important part of Hannah and Elkanah's follow-through. A part that should make us think and reflect on on our service, uh, on our faithfulness in God's service. And that that important thing is that Hannah and Elkanah could have gotten away with not fulfilling their vow. They could have gotten away with it. First of all, uh, the people of Israel, the the setting of of this story is in the time of the judges. When everyone did what was right in his own eyes, there was no fear of the Lord. Nobody would have cared if they didn't fulfill their vow. In the second place, there's no indication in the text that anyone else other than Eli and Hannah knew what Hannah had prayed for. And so there was nobody to hold them to account except God himself. And then in the third place, and this is related to the text or to the scripture reading from Numbers 30. In Numbers 30, we see that Elkanah, the husband, could have annulled the vow. He could have canceled the vow. In verse 12 of Numbers 30, we read, If her husband nullifies her vows when he hears about them, then none of the vows or pledges that come from her lips will stand. Her husband has nullified them, and the Lord will release her. So as the leader of the household, the husband, Elkanah, he had to approve or take ownership of his wife's vow. And this might be what is meant in our text, verse 21, where it speaks about Hannah going up to offer the yearly sacrifice and his vow. It may be that Hannah has taken ownership of Hannah's vow 
sorry, Elkanah has taken ownership of Hannah's vow and intends to go up and fulfill it. But it's not entirely clear what that means. In any case, in taking ownership of the vow, the husband had the power to cancel it. And you can imagine that Hannah and Elkanah could have probably quite easily convinced themselves that this would have been okay. You can imagine the conversations that this could have brought on between Elkanah and Hannah. As Hannah was nursing her son one evening, and Hannah was, uh, Elkanah was looking on, couldn't he have said, Do you really think we should, Hannah? Shouldn't, shouldn't we just keep him? Nobody will care. It's your only son. We won't be hurting anyone. I can cancel your vow, and the guilt will be on me, not on you. And God is a God of love. God will understand. And couldn't Hannah in that moment have so easily agreed? And I think we can all relate to this, that we often have that that tendency, the temptation to kind of get away with what we can get away with. But Hannah and her faithful husband Elkanah know in their hearts, they know what Hannah has promised. And they know how God has so miraculously answered her prayer. And they know that there is no honest, faithful option other than to present Samuel and Shiloh, as difficult as that might be. And so that is what they do. And in presenting Samuel at the tabernacle, we notice that Hannah not only presents him, she goes way above and beyond what is required. You read in verses 24 and 25. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. Eli and Hannah bring three bulls. That's a very significant offering. They also bring three times the amount of flour and wine required by God in Numbers 15 for one bull. So they bring three bulls and they bring enough flour and wine for three bulls. Hannah is probably here making three sacrificial offerings. Uh, The burnt offering, then the purification offering which was required after childbirth, and then um, the peace offering which was the offering in fulfillment of a vow. In any case, this is a very significant offering. They're an agricultural nation, uh, uh, A bull is a piece of, an expensive piece of farm equipment. And this is especially a big commitment because the offerings did not have to be a bull. Nowhere in the entire Mosaic law is it mandated that ordinary people like Hannah and Elkanah had to sacrifice a bull. It was optional. For example, in Leviticus 12, with the offering of purification, we see the requirement of a lamb and a turtle dove for the sin offering and the burnt offering or two turtle doves and two pigeons if you were poor. Again, remember that a bull was an expensive piece of farm equipment. This is like offering a new harvester when you could have satisfied the requirements of the vow with a, an old ride-on lawnmower or a snowblower. And this is especially striking in a nation that has become unfaithful. Again, nobody would have cared if they didn't offer anything. Because this was a time when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the point is that they have gone above and beyond in their fulfillment of their vow. 
It's amazing that when giving a gift to God, they're giving a gift to Hannah's only son. And when giving this gift, they present it with extravagant sacrifice. So they're acknowledging that it is only by grace that we even get to offer our gifts in the service of the Lord. And that's why we read together from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. The people had just given very generously uh, for the, the building of the temple. And then David prays, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. And then a few verses further. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. This is an amazing, amazing prayer. It's a moment where David sees things as they really are, and it's an insight into the way that we are called to to see our vows and commitments and fulfill them in the service of the Lord. Maybe we should ask ourselves, who are we, who are we not to fulfill our vows? Everything good we have has been given to us by God. Everything. Our lives, our health, our children. And everything rightfully belongs to Him. And therefore, as Christians, people belonging to Christ, bought by His blood, we we look at every good gift from God in the light of how we can use it most faithfully in His service. And this is very important that the best way we can work in God's service, the best way we can use our gifts with anything or anyone is by being faithful. Is by being faithful, especially to our vows and promises. And not just dutifully faithful, but exuberantly faithful, thankfully faithful. Even when things get hard, even when temptation comes, we are called to follow this pattern of Hannah. We're called to thankfully live out our vows, realizing that every gift is from God and that the best way we can promote His glory and our own joy, the best way is by using His gifts as He commands it is again in faithfulness. Now to come back to, to our culture This is certainly unnatural in our day and age. It's perhaps just as unnatural as, or even more unnatural as Hannah faithfully giving up her just weaned son in a totally unfaithful culture. We know that life is about me, myself, and I in almost every area of life. And so as Christians, we are called, we're called by this passage to live countercultural lives in our keeping of commitments and vows. Just two examples of this. If you are a young person who has professed your faith, why should you as a young person live a pure life? Nobody else seems to be, and you know that it's certainly easier not to. As a Christian, there are many reasons why you should live a pure life. But not least because you have said, I do, when asked this question, Do you declare that you love the Lord God and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve Him according to His word, to forsake the world and to crucify your old nature? You have answered, I do, to that question. You have vowed a vow before God and before His people. And one more example. Why should you as husbands and wives be faithful in a world of unfaithfulness? 
Again, nobody else seems to be, or, or it doesn't seem to be a very big deal when you're not in the world at large. And it's easier not to. But again, for many reasons as Christians, we're called to be faithful. Not least, again, because we have said, because you have said, I do. You have said, I do, to this question. Do you also promise never to forsake him or her, but to be true to him or her always, in good days and bad, in riches and poverty, in health and sickness, for as long as you both shall live? You have vowed a vow before God and his people. And we know, we all know that these things can be very, very difficult. Um, Sometimes we might wonder how it's even possible. How did Hannah fulfill her vow so willingly, so cheerfully? And how can we do that? How can we fulfill our vows like that? Again, the answer, there's, there's more than, the answer is bigger than I'm going to give you here. But a big part of the answer is by trusting that the Lord will use our commitments for good. Even when we don't see exactly how it's going to be, we trust that the Lord is going to use our commitments for good. And that's the content of our brief third point, trusting the Lord. In the story of Hannah, from uh, 1 verse 1 through to 2 verse 11, Hannah uses the covenant name of God, that's Yahweh, or the Lord in capital letters, uh, what's the number, 17 times. She uses his covenant name 17 times, almost every time she speaks. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Um, Let's notice this pattern also in verses 26 through 28. Hannah said to Eli, O my Lord, small letters, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah, Hannah knows God as a, as a faithful covenant God. And she's faithfully fulfilling her vow because she trusts in the faithfulness of her Lord. So does Elkanah. If we can back up just for a brief moment to verse 23. Elkanah says to Hannah, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Let the Lord establish his word. Hannah had vowed, she said, Lord, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him him in your service all the days of his life. And so when the Lord answered the prayer for a child, Hannah and Elkanah understood that they were not just given a child, but they were given a child who would be used in the service of the Lord all the days of his life. We'll see this actually also this afternoon in, in 2 verses 1 through 10. So Hannah and Elkanah know that the Lord is going to somehow use Samuel in his service, and that Samuel's birth is part of his greater plan for his covenant people. And therefore, Hannah and Elkanah, they had a peace and a thankfulness about it. Even though they're leaving their little boy behind uh, many kilometers away from home, in a, not a very nice place, they had a thankfulness about it, and they trusted the faithfulness of the Lord and His Word. Just remember one more time that while we as readers know what's going to happen, they in that moment, handing over their son, didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They, in faith, give him over to the Lord. And so the answer to the question, how can we feel 
fulfill our vows like Hannah fulfilled hers? The answer, part of the answer is that the more we trust God's goodness and faithfulness, the more we will be willing to give up everything in His service. If we wonder sometimes in our hearts why, why we don't do big things in His service, or even why we have such a hard time being faithful, at least part of the answer is that we aren't trusting God enough. When we trust the Word of God, we are willing to give up everything for the sake of His kingdom, even the things that are most precious to us. Three examples from the New Testament. We will be willing to give up our families and our homes. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left the house, who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. We'll be willing to give up even our riches. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And if we trust God, we will even be willing to give up our own lives. Hebrews 11, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Notice in these three examples that theme of trusting God for the future. You will have treasure in heaven. You will receive a hundredfold, so that they might rise again to a better life. These are promises from the faithful word of God. And this is a big part of what our faith is all about as Christians also in 2015, that we trust God's word about the future. And we trust that as we live out our difficult commitments, He is going to use those commitments for His glory and for our good. So in conclusion, as Christians, we are called through this passage, we are called to fulfill our vows, to fulfill our commitments sacrificially. We're called to count the cost as joy, even when it's difficult. We are asked to trust God's work in Christ as we wait for the fulfillment of his promises. We don't often, or or we often don't immediately see the blessings, and often faithfulness feels like it comes at a cost. But when we simply act in faith and we simply live faithful lives, we can trust that God will use us. God will use us powerfully, and God will bring us to that final day of glory when his kingdom comes in all its fullness. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 116, stanzas 